This is Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone. Dubai Eye 103.8. Indeed, it is starting up. Everyone, welcome to the show. Starting up with Virtue Zone, Richard Dean standing in for Tom Urquhart with you through till 11 a.m. this morning on Dubai Eye 103.8 FM. Join the conversation. You can ping us a message. 4001 still works. You can use the ARM Play app or, of course, on Twitter at Dubai Eye 1038FM at Virtue Zone. Hashtag starting up with Virtue Zone. Hashtag be your own boss. And I am delighted to be joined today in the studio by the group director of operations at Virtue Zone, Sarah Giwala. Sarah, good morning. Thanks good for being morning, with us. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for having me. So today we're focusing on public relations. If you're a new business, should you be looking at a public relations strategy? Where do you start with a public relations strategy without spending a fortune on a countless army of consultants? Crucially, how do you avoid bad publicity and bad PR? We're going to be speaking with Polly Williams, Managing Director of PR and Marketing Firm Tishtash, about how to avoid the big mistakes, plus the power of influencers. Can they really help your business? Going to catch up with Jamal Almawa, the Founder and Managing Director of Gambit Communications, a company that specialises in influencer engagement. All that to come. You're listening to Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone On Dubai Eye, what? 103.8. But first, let's look at some of the big stories of the day. Well briefed, the business stories you need to know this week. Sarah, you've been looking at some of these big stories. According to the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development, known as ADID now, a local service agent will be responsible for managing licensing requirements if there is no Emirati partner. This is something we're getting so many questions about, Sarah, and I even have some myself, about the move towards 100% foreign ownership of so many different types of businesses here in the UAE, and yet people are trying to navigate that. So what can you tell us? Well, look, I think it's fantastic. It's just another emirate in, within the emirates, um, you know, allowing 100% foreign ownership. We saw earlier this year um, Dubai had allowed it as well and released a lot more activities. So this is now uh, Abu Dhabi following. And I have no doubts that the um, the remaining Emirates will also follow this kind of framework, allowing 100% foreign ownership a- across countless uh, business activities. So added say they are going to... they. Are- a, a local service agent will be responsible for managing license requirements if there is no Emirati partner. Just explain to us the difference between, if you can, a service agent and an Emirati partner. Sounds Coke and Pepsi to me, but there are differences. <laughs> it is. It is similar, but there are some technicalities around it and the legalities, of course. So a local partner is when you have an individual Emirati owning the 51% of your company and a local service agent is a company owned by an Emirati that can then have hold the 51% of uh, the DED company or the Abu Dhabi mainland company. So, I mean, these things are now a little bit in our rearview mirror. We're moving towards 100% foreign ownership. The UAE in general is making it a lot more easier to do business. Um, it is, you know, with all the deals we see floating around, it's a lot It's a lot easier to do business and we're attracting a lot of foreign talent and foreign um, global companies. So uh, it's just an incredible advancement and I'm looking forward to seeing what else happens in this space. But, but bottom line, if I was to come to you guys at Virtue Zone this week and said, okay... Abu Dhabi, I've read or heard on the radio, 604 categories, particularly service companies where I can do this. 
and I was to set up a company, would I need a service agent or not as, a, as an expatriate myself? So it depends on the activities that you're selecting for your business license. So um, if we look at the article, there are certain activities that have been um, explicitly mentioned. Um, so there are fields of accounting, training, consultancy, beauty centers, computer and internet network companies, among others. So we would have to, you know, we would see what your business plan is. We would look at what activities you're selecting. And absolutely, if you're selecting one of the activities that the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development allow without 100% foreign ownership, you could absolutely have 100% ownership of your company. If I turned up and said, Sarah, I want to open a bank, and an oil exploration company, then it's really a more complicated no, that's conversation. Definitely, yeah, these uh, so banking and oil, petroleum, these are highly regulated business activities, and you do need local uh, partners as well as also uh, a string of approvals. So they are not easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> Setting up banks is is difficult, but not impossible. And we would we would definitely help you do that as well, well. Well, let's talk about banking because the second story you've picked today is this: Standard Chartered Bank (UAE) announced the third cohort of its Women in Tech program. $100,000 worth of prize money up for grabs. This program aims to support the social and economic development of female entrepreneurs in the country, provides training, mentorship, team funding, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They've teamed up with the guys in DIFC, the FinTech Hive, and Hub 71. It's still open. Female entrepreneurs have until September the 5th to apply. Tell us about this one and why you grabbed this one. Yeah, amazing. So obviously, um, female business is something I feel very strongly about. Women in business um, have been making a lot of noise in the last few years and also they have been able to raise a lot of funding. So um, it's just an incredible um, platform that Standard Chartered gives women in tech. And um, they also, it's a global program. They run in a few different countries. I'm just going to pull out which ones, but I think it's, um, Kenya, Pakistan, Nigeria, and a few others. So it's it's women in tech in developing countries. Um, the UAE is one of them. And yeah, as you said, applications close on this on September fifth. So it'd be good to get all your applications in, ladies. How different is the is the workplace today as you see it than when you started your career? Because you were a corporate banker for a while, weren't you? With, I was. with HSBC. I mean, you've, yeah. worked, you've worked in in Pakistan, haven't you, in the corporate sector? So you've had a a diverse background. How different is it, if at all? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I have been very fortunate in in the career that I've chosen or the places I've chosen to work. So HSBC Corporate Bank, I joined in Ireland. It was 2008, so it was a global recession. There wasn't too much to do. Um, but it, it was fantastic and a huge opportunity um, as a young graduate. Um, but it was in Ireland, so um, there was no, there was nothing that I would feel to mention being a woman in business there. You know, nothing that warrants uh, even mention. Um, it's a hugely inclusive environment. Um, working in Pakistan was definitely different. Um, I grew up in Ireland, so it was a bit of not really necessarily a culture shock, but because my family is from there, we'd go back home each summer. And you do speak fluent Urdu, don't you? I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. So that was also a huge plus, you know, to be able to speak the local language. Um, it is definitely a different environment. The UAE is highly inclusive and I wouldn't, you know, I, I've never had any issues. In fact, I feel like respect for women is is uh, prevalent here and again nothing that nothing untoward in my experience and of course you, if you look at standard chartered bank the the chief executive of standard chartered in the uae 
prominent Emirati businesswoman, banker Rola Abu Mana. Then Absolutely. you look at down the road in Abu Dhabi, the chief executive of, of FAB or FAB, First Abu Dhabi Bank, is uh, Hannah al Rostamani as well. So we're seeing these very high profile role models in some very high profile banking jobs. Yeah, I mean, thank, it's thanks to the local government here. I mean, women in business, women in government is hugely high up on the mandate for inclusivity and uh, equality and closing a gender gap. So I think the UAE government has done a phenomenal job of making sure there's a good balance here. Well, let's look at the, the third story you picked. And it does follow on in some ways from the fundraising story we covered. MENA Startups raised $632 million in July. Now, these figures come from WAMDA. There were 77 deals in July alone. It's a record-breaking month, thanks mostly to Kitopi's $415 million Series C fundraising round. That's the uh, food and restaurant company. Yeah, I'm oversimplifying, but that's the, that's the cloud field it's kitchen. in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, congratulations to everyone on this list here. Um, July has been a busy month. I didn't realize how busy it was. Um, a lot of stuff has happened behind the scenes. We've got also um, Swivel. Swivel has done a phenomenal job as well. They're, um, they listed or they mentioned their intention to list it and they've also closed and raised uh, uh, big but numbers. They, they raised, it was $50 million swivel, wasn't it? Was it? With, yes. It no, was, that was Tabby who got $50 million. There's so many of them, I get confused. There are so many, but these, uh, so swivel, uh, we know them quite well. Mohammed Kandil has done a fin- fantastic job in his team. Um, it's just phenomenal. It's one of the biggest unicorn launches here in the UAE. One thing though, uh, and we're kind of all, almost arguing against each other now, that funding was dominated by male founders, according to research by WAMDA. They looked at the founders, looked at the, the companies that raised the money, and they looked at the founders. 13 startups founded by women raised $2 million. Four mixed-team startups raised $3 million. That's $5 million out of more than half a billion, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, still a lot of work needs to be done. Recently, there has been some, um, some data out on women raising a lot more in funding recently. So that number is growing and the gap is closing. It will take a little bit of time. This uh, recent, uh, the funding between Katopi and Swivel, this has skewed the numbers slightly. So let's see, the year has not finished yet. We're going to have to see how it plays out, Richard. And quickly, if we look at, at the kind of companies that you're setting up, you have a lot of data, big data on the type of people, the profile of people who are setting up companies. What would you say is the, the split between male founders and female founders. I know you haven't got the data up to hand, yeah. so I'm putting you on the spot here, but just your 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 instinct? Um, honestly, I want to go back. As soon as I get back to the office today, I'm going to check um, updated figures. But last I checked, it was 65-45. So um, it's relatively equal there. Okay, 65 male. So, okay, fine. So that's, it's... Yeah, it's relatively It's close. in the right ballpark, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we've heard about initiatives such as the... The, the 30% initiative, the drive to get 30% of board positions filled by women, 30% yeah. of C-suite filled by women. So you're, you're above the 35% threshold. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's getting closer. But I do want to check updated data once I get back into the office. Amory, if you're listening, please get me those numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you can ping us a message, 4001, or you can use the Messenger app. We're going to turn our attention in a second to the issues of public relations and also using influencers. We're going to hear from our experts in a second. Uh, first of all, though, the, the virtue zone approach to these things, I guess you, you take a you have a marketing mix, don't you, in terms of how you, you promote your business? We do, absolutely. And and look, I think, you know, public relations is hugely important. I think it's a case of timing. When is a business ready to actually 
invest and start working on public relations. You know, um, too often we see businesses with not the business model in fully in place and they, they get, they're excited. You know, entrepreneurs are passionate people. They get excited and they just want to do everything all at once. But it has to be timed. There is a right time and place for PR and um, influencers as well and in relying on ambassadors for and, your business. And I've seen the massive billboards that you guys have, have had on prominent locations around here with an influencer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's something we definitely we we rely on. And look, we're in, you know, it's 2021. And this is where it's headed. And this is where it's been for the last few years. And um, you just got to keep up with the times. Every business has to evolve. Marketing is hugely innovated in innovative in general, as a business discipline. And why would you know, marketing channels be any different? You're listening to Starting Up with Tom Urquhart and Virtue Zone on Dubai Eye 103.8. Indeed, you are. And it's good to have you with us through till 11 o'clock this morning. Sarah Gewell is with us in the studio, director, her group director of operations at Virtue Zone. But now we bring in our first expert guest of the morning to talk about the role of public relations in your SME. Polly Williams is the managing director of the marketing and communications firm Tishtash here in Dubai. And she joins us now on the line and indeed via Microsoft Teams. Morning, Polly. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you guys? Yeah, we're excellent. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to get on to what happens when PR goes wrong, when you have a PR disaster <laughs> and how to fix it in a second. But first of all, for people listening who, who work for SMEs or own SMEs, they maybe haven't got a big budget. They can't afford a, a firm like yours or, or other firms like yours. What message would you give to them in terms of DIY public relations? DIY public relations. I think there is a lot that you can do for yourselves and a lot of it comes down to really good research. Um, I think it's about making sure that if you want to get yourselves in magazines, you need to be reading those magazines for yourselves, knowing where you think you would be best placed, who is the editor of that newspaper or that magazine, who's the person that wrote the article that you thought was a really good example of how another brand did something. So really about doing your research, get to know people, communicate, put yourselves out there. And probably most importantly, don't forget about social media, which is probably our most important channel these days. Make sure you've got a strong social media presence and don't be afraid to reach out to people. And also don't be afraid to collaborate with brands that you like, that you think can support you from a PR perspective as well. So really, it's just about being open and giving it a go and staying positive and doing everything you can to just put yourselves out there in a positive way. And I absolutely take your point about social media, and we'll talk a little bit about influencers in a short Mm. while. But this, there is still some value, I'm I'm sure, uh, of earned media in a magazine, a newspaper, a radio station, a TV station, uh, a well-known brand name. The credibility that gives you, the the reach that that gives you, Mm. there's still value in it, and people do value it. And yet, typically, you have to get through a media gatekeeper to get into the magazine or the newspaper or the radio station or whatever it may be. Now, if you can afford a PR firm like yours, and I know you specialise in things like beauty and wellness, well, it's your job. Someone just starting up who's maybe just set up their business with a firm like Virtue Zone, mm-hmm. and they, they don't know that world of, of media in the way that you do, Polly. Any tips on that? Mm-hmm. I think when you're a brand starting out, it's all about storytelling. Even as a, a you know a huge brand that we might work with here is in the agency, it's really about what is your story? What can you share with people that they might not know about you that sets you apart from your competition? 
whether you're doing something differently, whether you're giving back in a different way, whether you've got a spokesperson that stands for something that's really relevant in the market at the moment, whether you're using an ingredient that's not being used in any other product, what is the thing that makes you stand out and what's the story that you can tell? Because ultimately, all journalists, what they're looking for is a great story. All editors are looking for a great story. So if you can work out what your story is and what your storytelling is, you send that to an editor, yes, of course. Look, the joy of having a PR agency is they do all of this hard work for you. We have the relationships. But ultimately, if what you have is strong and compelling and you get the email addresses, you know, we're in a relatively small market. There's always somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. There are ways in, but it's all about strength of storytelling, I would say. And the ability to tell that story as well. You say a little bit of of public relations or or media training can go a long way or even public speaking training. If you're going to be putting videos or podcasts together on social media, if you want to appear on a TV station, you kind of got to know a little bit about about how to do that, how to, to present the best possible version of yourself. Yeah, and I think if you don't have a lot of budget, I think, you know, you said it correctly, media training is something that can really go a long way, especially during kind of a post-COVID world. People want to see a human face behind a brand. And especially if you're an SME, you are likely the person that's put blood, sweat and tears into this business. You love it. You're passionate about it. You believe in it. And that goes a long way into your storytelling as well. So if you can hone that and if you can use media training to help you share those USPs in a way that's really going to grab people's attention, then that's a great way for you to go out there and start building that PR for yourselves. Sarah Gearwell is with us in the studio, Group Director of Operations at Virtue Zone. Obviously, you've got thousands of startups passing through uh, Virtue Zone. What questions do you get from them about marketing and public relations and what advice can you give them in those early days when, they, when, when they're bootstrapping the business and yeah. they, they can't afford to pick up the phone and hire Polly yet? I know. I mean, that's one, one of the questions I have for Polly, actually, is what she would kind of advise um, businesses launching or starting out. What kind of budget would you advise to set aside? We do, ask, we do actually get asked these questions all the time, but we don't, we don't necessarily help with business plans and planning the whole, you know, all disciplines across the business. Um, but we, we have contacts obviously in place and Tishtash and, Vir- Tishtash and VirtuZone go way back. Um, um, mm-hmm. Polly, good to see you again. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, just I mean, so- we started off as a, an SME as well. So we know what it's like to be a startup. You know, we're a completely self-funded PR agency. You know, we're 10 years old now. It takes a long time to get where you want to get to. Um, I think when it comes to budgets, um, there are a lot of PR agencies out there as well. Um, and there's some good ones and there's also some bad ones. And there's some very good freelancers and some not very good freelancers. So again, I think it's about doing your research. I think in terms of monetary value, you need to invest in PR. There is no point saying, oh, I, I've got 5,000 dirham here. I'm going to spend 5,000 dirham and I'm suddenly going to get this amazing PR and everything's going to change my life. PR is an investment. So I would say don't think about hiring someone externally to do your PR until you have a longer term budget, three months at a minimum, six month budget, Um, a one off budget. PR is about momentum and it's about sustainability. And until you feel ready that you have that money that you can spend on it, put it into other channels. Uh, put it into social media, put it into a really good content writer that can write things on your website and and help you get all of those building blocks in place first before you invest in external PR. 
Let's talk about what happens, Polly, when it all goes wrong, when the PR strategy turns into a PR nightmare and the headlines turn against you. I'm going to use the example of NMC Healthcare, based here in the UAE, very big hospital provider, very well respected, strong brand name since the 1970s here in the UAE, and yet, towards the end of 2019, disaster struck in the form of a financial problem. Fraud, a multi-billion dollar fraud was detected there. Now, the consumer-facing business, NMC Healthcare, Cosmesurge, Faki IVF, they didn't have any problems in terms of the product or service that they were delivering in terms of their PR and reputation, but they did in the business pages because of this very high-profile financial fraud. It's a question that we addressed this week on the Business Breakfast, actually. We spoke with Michael Davis, who's the new CEO of NMC, and we asked him whether he thinks going forward the name NMC can survive as a brand and, and remain credible. The NMC healthcare brand is a strong brand in the UAE. And regardless of, of what we've been through and, and, and what, what's said in the news, day in and day out, patients access our system. And over 60% of the patients that come to us are repeat patients. You know, we're, we're delivering the babies of the babies that we delivered, you know, previously. So I think that there is a lot of brand recognition and we've always been a strong uh, partner for the UAE. So, Polly, what is the playbook when it all goes wrong, when the headlines turn against you? Uh, well, I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of brands out there that, that get it wrong. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to necessarily comment in this specific case because I think, you know, from the reading and the research that I did, it, it was handled very well. And they're very lucky in a way that the, the, the overall brand name can be separated from the individual consumer brands that sit underneath it. So from that perspective, I think that was, you know, that was relatively lucky. I think in terms of playbook, the reality is you just need to be prepared and you need to have somebody that is there that can talk to the media in a way that is comforting to the to the consumer that is authoritative um, and you need to know what it is that you want to stand for i think what we often find is people flap too much when a crisis hits and there's this sudden urgency to respond without thinking about how you're going to respond and what you're going to say and that often leads to further mistakes um so really the playbook is be prepared have things already you know a crisis is going to hit at some point what level of crisis will be dependent on what your business is um but you know if it's a it could range from anything from an unhappy an unhappy customer posting something on social media all the way to fraud, uh, airline crashes, things like that. So there are, of course, different levels of crisis and you need to be prepared for all of those um, through your written communication. So I think the playbook is don't flap, be prepared uh, and have somebody senior who is going to be your spokesperson. And don't let that happen too late in the day. Be prepared now for all eventualities. Sorry, if I can ask you from Virtue Zone's perspective, particularly on, on social media, not so much the mainstream media, but social media, you're high profile, you're a big company now. Inevitably, when you get to a certain scale, you're going to get some snarky comments on social media, whether it's Absolutely. your Instagram account or Twitter. They'll be the minority, but they will be there. Yeah. How do you guys react to that? How do you engage with people on social media who who have a criticism or, or a gripe or whatever it yeah. may be. Yeah, I mean, 100% every business. So no business is immune to an unhappy or dissatisfied customer. Customer satisfaction is something we take extremely, um, we handle with extreme importance. Um, but of course, there's the odd the odd case. We, we've been very fortunate in, in terms of the number or the frequency at which that happens. But of course, it does happen. And yeah, we, we you know, we have a we have a dedicated department to look after such things. And um, we have Amr Yahya, 
He's our director of customer experience, uh, amongst many other things, including partnership. But, you know, he handles that and he has a, he has an SOP to follow and we make sure that we hear the customer. We understand what the issue is and we, you know, we rectify it as well as making sure that we avoid that same error or mistake in the future. Sarah, thanks very much indeed for your contribution. Sarah remains with us for the rest of the program, but we say goodbye and thank you to Polly Williams, Managing Director of Tish. I appreciate your time, Polly. Thank you. Thank you, Polly. Thank you very much. Startup Spotlight. Today we're featuring Jamal Al Mawed. Now he's the founder and managing director of Gambit Communications, based here in Dubai. He is described as a pioneer in influencer strategy. Here is our producer Catherine Cunningham with more. Jamal Al Mawed has been acknowledged for his forward-thinking approach to public relations. An Emirati, Palestinian, and British hybrid, he's worked in PR for more than 14 years. After senior roles at Rolls Royce and Dubai Properties, he started Gambit Communications. Gambit Communications is a uh, public relations, influencer relations and social media agency. Uh, We were founded three years ago and we have some fantastic multinational clients like Ferrari, um, the Ritz-Carlton, Amazon and Jeep Middle East. Um, and we currently operate in Dubai and oversee the whole region. Jamal is a regular speaker at events and has been listed on a prestigious list of innovators by the Holmes Report. And he joins us now live via Microsoft Teams. Jamal, sabah al-hair, good to have you on the show. Sabah al-noor, pleasure to be here. Thanks very much indeed. So we just said a little bit about the story of Gambit. I've known you a while now from your time at Rolls-Royce and previously. But tell us about the moment, because you had really, really good jobs in communications here in Dubai, with, you know, the Dubai holdings of this world and Rolls-Royce and, and others. What made you think, I'm going to take the plunge and set up on my own? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's uh, it's that moment of when do you start your own business? If you have that feeling and that kind of entrepreneurial mindset that you'd like to do it is key. And I think some people sometimes do it too soon and some people wait till it's too late. Um, for me personally, um, I had uh, for, for the viewers who don't know how maybe the communications field is, you have uh, agency side, which is where you, you the work is um, is done by agencies on behalf of brands. And then you have something called brand side or in-house where you're doing it within the actual company. And I had done both sides of it and, and enjoyed both sides. Um, and there was just a point where I realized that I would like to be able to have my own business, be able to add value. But, but crucially, I felt there was a gap in the market. And that gap was coming from the fact that there used to be a lot of boutique agencies where you could get fantastic quality and kind of a nice dedicated um, care for your brand. Um, but I felt that had become a lot less. I think a lot of the successful boutique agencies grew into uh, into big ones um, and obviously um, suffered the same problems that bigger companies come into in terms of maybe the uh, inability to have that kind of dedicated uh, care. And there weren't enough, I think, startups filling that gap. So I felt, A, there was a gap in the market, um, B, I felt that there was something, uh, there was a need that could be met. Uh, and I thought that's the right time to do it. And yet you are now in danger of falling into the same trap as those other boutique agencies. I'm sure when you started up two or three years ago, your clients would have got an awful lot of FaceTime with Jamal. But now as your team grows, that will be less and less the case. How do you avoid those pitfalls, the big company pitfalls? Well, you lose the intimacy, you lose the personal touch. You know, it's it's a fantastic question, and I think that it's something that we've the the you what you have to do is really 
take the journey as you go along is finding the right people. I mean, finding talent is so is so difficult. It's not because the talent doesn't exist, but it's finding that right talent. You need to have an eye for it, but also creating a, a culture, a company culture. And if you're able to create that culture where everyone is really pulling in the same direction and feeling the same way um, towards what they'd like to do for their clients, I think you end up in a situation where whether the FaceTime is happening with Jamal or with anyone else in the team, you're getting the same level of care and quality. And that's what we've been able to maintain so far. But I fully, fully understand that as we grow faster and faster, it becomes harder to maintain. And that's the challenge. And that's probably the differentiator between companies that um, end up being successful long term and those that have a short kind of flash in the pan um, uh, success rate. Well, one of the things that you do is is influencer marketing and you advise people on how to use influencers in their various marketing campaigns and strategies. I'm going to ask you your thoughts on this. Uh, but first of all, let's hear from one of the leading influencers in the UAE with 13 million followers on, on Instagram. This is Ahlam. <laughs> So, great, 30 million followers that Ahlam has. Uh, but how would you use an influencer like that? How do you approach an influencer like that? What, what kind of investment do you make in working with an influencer like that? It can be very high. I mean, we know that with influencers that there's also that differentiation between a celebrity and an influencer. Um, because celebrities are also influencers in their own right, but there's different reasons for it. So I think the traditional uh, agreed upon definition of it is is that a celebrity is famous for something other than uh, for a certain thing. So they could be a sports person, an actor, a singer, or so on. Uh, Whereas an influencer is famous for themselves, for their own profile, for the audience they have that follows what they do. So that's the differentiator, I think. So um, Ahlam and so on would probably fall under the celebrity category, which has always existed. You know, we've always had brand ambassador deals and so on. Um, But the traditional, uh, or the existing, the new definition of influencer has added such a fantastic new dynamic to communications and even advertising and marketing because you suddenly have, whereas in the past you were trying to reach people on a mass level and try and get your messages out, suddenly you have ways to target people through people being the platform. And and we know that people like to trust other people and they follow them and they enjoy content. And so the more authentic, I think, and credible that is, the more likely your message will come across and have an impact. In terms of budget, what's the starting point to work with an influencer at the moment, Jamal? Are we talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dirhams? It completely depends on the number of followers and also uh, what field that influencer is in. Um, it's not; it can start from as low as stuff, you know, two, three thousand dirhams. If you're looking at what we call nano influencers, so that's people who have um, below ten thousand followers, um, but have maybe a targeted; they're reaching the right audience. Because to be to be honest, with some businesses. Even if you're reaching 2,000 people, but it's the right people, that can have a, a good value for you. Um, so you can, it can start at that and it can go up to, absolutely can go up into the hundreds of thousands when you go into influencers who have millions of followers. And also as you get into bigger brands like FMCGs and ones that really like a huge mass approach. Going to bring in Sarah now, Sarah Giwala, Group Director of Operations at Virtue Zone. You've used influencers haven't you and we mentioned this earlier on those big billboards that you've had around town 
for one of your promotional campaigns. You used an influencer on that, did you not? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I can't even remember the name, but (laughs) don't kill me, guys, in the marketing team. Um, But yes, I mean, look, I think with influencers, a lot of businesses rely on them and, and it just makes sense. Like I said before, this is just where marketing is headed. And, you know, I think the most important thing when using an influencer and, and Jamal touched on it is obviously the number of followers they have. They, it makes it more expensive. But I think that you have to know your audience. You have to select the right influencer for the audience that you're you're targeting. And also there needs to be a value proposition and there has to be trust. I think for consumers... Consumers are becoming a lot more savvy than, you know, than we have traditionally given them credit for. Um, so consumers are savvy. They know exactly what we're doing, which businesses are using influencers and, and for what reasons. So it's important, I think, when giving advice, it's imperative to choose an influencer that actually suits your clientele, you know. And yet, you know, good old fashioned earned media still has a, a role. I mean, Jamal, you and I have known each other, what, 10 years or, or so now. Back then, one of the primary roles of public relations was to get media coverage in Gulf News or Al Bayan or magazines or radio stations, whatever it may be. That That is still a role that you have. And I know that because, Jamal, companies like you and Tish Tashi we just heard from do pitch radio stations like ours to get their clients on the radio or to get them on Dubai One television. So I guess even though, yes, it's changed dramatically and the world of social media has changed things, in some ways there's still value in being on the front page of Gulf News or or being on Dubai iRadio, is there? There's absolutely value. And I think, Richard, it's so important to mention what the difference is between those types of communication. Um, If you take a step back and look at the traditional marketing funnel, which we call IDA, so awareness, interest, desire, action, um, the first step was always awareness. So make people aware of your product. But I think in the current age of social media, there's a step before that now, which is um, to get their attention. And attention has become harder and harder to get. And we know that attention spans are reducing to seven seconds, five seconds, and even less. And, the, you know, the funny joke that it's less than a goldfish's memory these, t- uh, these days. And the truth is that catching attention sometimes, you can do that really well through influencers. Because people are on social media, they see, so you get their attention and you start that conversation with them. On the other hand, when it comes to earned media and public relations, the job that we have is to find stories that stand on their own as with merit as something that would be interesting for an audience to to listen to and you know you know very well richard like there's a lot of times we'll pitch stories and you'll say not interested because it's not uh, achieving maybe a certain editorial um, uh, um, need that has to be out there and that's the that's the the power of pr is that we have to find those stories and why is it key it's because third party credibility that comes from a media outlet still has a huge value because these are trained journalists like yourselves who understand how to choose and how to convey a story and give the right context the second most important thing about it is that this is very important when it comes to seo so search engine optimization which means that when somebody is looking for information about the brand they'll google it and when they google it what comes up the big news outlet stories will come up and give you more information so that has a value that will always stand in on it, uh, in of itself very intrinsically as a key part of the overall marketing and communications um, package, let's say. Jamal, very quickly, question come in from Bartholomew when it comes to Instagram, well, not just Instagram influencers, but influencers in general, could be TikTok, could be whatever. How do you make sure that their followers are genuine, not fake? Just 30 seconds on that, Jamal. 
Yeah, so we invest in softwares that actually show us so we can tell what's fake and what isn't. But in addition to that, there's a trained human eye aspect in terms of that we can tell uh, based on our training where something doesn't look right. You know, if somebody's got a 20% of their audience coming from, for example, um, Russia or Cuba or something, but they're based in the UAE, you know that they might have paid for some followers. So we always make sure that we're avoiding those types of people or at least making the client aware of that. Jamal, great talking to you as ever. Thanks very much indeed for your time. Congratulations on the success so far of Gambit and good luck for the future. That is the voice of Jamal Almara joining us on Microsoft Teams. He is the founder and managing director of Gambit Communications. Company Clinic. Go through some of your questions this morning. Sarah Giwala is with us in the studio, Group Director of Operations at Virtue Zone. Sarah, thank you for being with us. Hello, you're very welcome. Now, it's the first time you and I have done this show together, and I was looking through your, your CV and your LinkedIn profile, being a bit of a stalker, as you do. <laughs> and in, you're born and raised in Dublin, and you've got a corporate banking background with, with HSBC before joining Virtue Zone a while ago. But I was really interested in, in a kind of two or three year block in your career when you worked in, in Pakistan. And we were just chatting about that. It's a, a family business because you were born and raised in Ireland, but your family has significant roots in, in Pakistan. Yeah. So you worked there for two or three years and you were just back there last weekend, weren't you? I was, yeah. I flew out on Tuesday night last week and I flew back in on Sunday morning. So was that to check up on the family or the family business or a bit of both? It was just to say hello to the family. I'm not uh, I'm not too involved with the family business anymore since I've moved to Dubai. Virtue Zone keeps me very busy. <laughs> so yeah, it was just a family visit. And I've been dying to go back to Karachi since June. But of course, um, the UAE and uh you know, there were border issues between Pakistan and the UAE, which are now clear. So I'm delighted that I was able to fly. So what was the, the, the process? And we're, we're, we're getting to, we should be company clinic, but I'm going to do travel <laughs> clinic for a second. I'm going to hijack it because it is interesting. What was the procedure for, for booking your flight and getting out and the stuff you had to do in advance? Yeah. And then coming back in and getting presumably a PCR test in Karachi and all of these things? Yeah. So traveling to Pakistan was absolutely fine. I mean, it was just the regular stuff you got to do. The PCA, PCR test for 48 hours uh, in advance, you book your flight, um, you head to the airport really early. Um, so that was all fine. Um, but coming back from Pakistan, you have to make sure that if you have a Dubai issued residence visa, firstly, it's only for residents coming back to the UAE. Um, so if you have a Dubai uh, issued residence visa, you need to have the GDRFA approval. Um, if you have a visa issued from any of the other Emirates, you need to have the ICA approval. That is a mandatory requirement. Um, you need to do the 48 Eight hours in advance PCR test, as well as the new, uh, the newly mandated uh, rapid PCR test as well. So that's that's uh, that's why the flights, even though it was announced about a week ago that the the borders have reopened and it's fine, um, it was actually the airport setting up the infrastructure for the rapid testing facilities at each airport in the major cities of Islamabad, Karachi, and Lahore that took a while because. Um, there was some sort of miscommunication between our governments. So, um, yeah, now it's all sorted. And I'm glad to say I flew in early morning on Sunday and I was in the office by noon. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. And how? final question on this. Yeah. How is, how is business in Pakistan? Is it business as usual, approaching business as usual? So, look, of, of course, with uh, COVID, the lockdowns have really significantly impacted certain businesses. Obviously, um, grocery, healthcare, that's all open. But... Um, 
indoor dining has been shut. Um, so Pakistan is a very innovative market. I mean, we're uh, my family business is affected by the food. We're, we're in the food and beverage industry, so we're affected um, highly and significantly by the the ban on indoor dining, which has been on and off and mainly on as a ban since uh, March 2020. So it's been a hugely testing tr- time for a lot of businesses in Pakistan, but we have to be innovative. So, um, for example, one of the things we did, we have a cafe on a main, uh, a busy high street in Karachi. And what we did was we we took out all the windows from the cafe, so all the glass windows, and we, we made it like an outdoor or semi-outdoor restaurant. So we're able to operate with obviously reduced capacity in line with all government SOPs that we follow. But we, you just, you're forced to innovate. You know, I think in every... Every business across all industries during COVID has had to just be agile. We've had to be agile. Even VirtuZone in Dubai, for example, you know, March 2020, genuinely, we had no idea what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. I mean, we had we had immense faith and trust in the UAE government, of course, being here. But, you know, it was it was a confusing time for a lot of businesses. And we realized we got to be agile and just think on our toes and be innovative and um, the businesses that were able to do that have survived. But how, how is how is VirtuZone looking at the moment if we look at uh, whatever metrics that, that you look at to judge the performance <laughs> of the business, say, August 2021 versus August 2019? Yeah. Um, so 2019 was a, a strong year. Okay. So that was, uh, we did really, really well in 2019, touch wood. 2020 was an anomaly, of course, with what happened. Um, but even in 2020, we are glad to report that we had record breaking new business setup in 2020, which was, we were even surprised. But of course, when you look at the macroeconomics, it all makes sense. So the government stimulus packages really helped. The reduced price points and setting up a new business really helped. Um, the way the difference in the way the UAE handled the COVID situation and the like other countries globally, namely the West, handled um, uh, their the situation. I mean, it, the UAE was just it had stood out as a place to do business, as a place to be during the pandemic, and um, government decisions obviously in highly bureaucratic and highly diplomatic or highly uh, d- democratic. Sorry, that's the word in highly democratic. Um, economies and countries in terms of policies and politics, decisions take longer to make. Here in the UAE, decisions were taken faster, good decisions were taken, and the UAE has really established itself as a really great place to be during a pandemic and after, post-pandemic. Answer me this question. Anecdotally, we've heard that, that there is a phenomenon of people who came to Dubai late last year and early this year, just because it was relatively open and they wanted to spend a few weeks, typically wealthy people, often owning their own business, liked it so they stayed a few weeks, liked it a bit more so they stayed a few months, and after a few months thought, you know what, I could just set up my business here. I could move my headquarters here. I could base myself here. The rules and regulations are great. It's, if not tax-free, then very, very low tax. Um, and, and I'm loving sitting by the pool having a, a cold Coca-Cola. We've heard that anecdotally. Uh, for example, the guys at ICD Brookfield Place, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the office block down in DIFC, yeah. they said yeah. that they're having inquiries from people like that that they just didn't expect. Are you seeing it? Is it real or is it just imagined? A hundred percent. I would say as far back as um, April and May 2021, that, 20, sorry, April, May 2020, that's when we saw the influx of inquiries 
We particularly as from early the as UK that. as early as that, yeah. Um, so if you remember, in April we had about three weeks of a serious lockdown where we needed a permit to go grocery shopping. I'm so glad those days are behind <laughs> us. Um, they used to be my daily social visits, or let's say three times a week social visits. But um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as early as May 2020, we had inquiries, and particularly from the UK, and also the UAE government came out with so many initiatives that supported that kind of. Um, way of thinking. So the UAE government came out with the nomad visa, whereas whereby you can have a job or have employment or have a business outside of the UAE, but have that permit and residence visa to live in the UAE with. So that, that kind of got a lot of people thinking. And although we didn't have too much of those that we sold as a product, um, we got a lot more, um, I want to set up my business in the UAE, I'm ready. You know, So people who were already thinking of setting up a business and, and taking advantage of the tax-free uh, regime here, um, it was just the push they needed to get started a lot sooner. Is that purely, I'm only got about a minute left, is that purely a UAE phenomenon or are you seeing it elsewhere around the Gulf in, in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia to an extent? I mean, uh, we see it in the UAE. I haven't, pre- anecdotally or professionally, I haven't seen it too much in the rest of the GCC, but I know Oman is up there in terms of company formation and um, Saudi Arabia is garnering a lot of attention globally, right? With their laxed policies and um, they're just more a lot more progressive, progressive thinking and it's easier to do business now in Saudi than it ever has been before and it's going to get a lot easier too. So we do have a lot of interest in Saudi Arabia and we ourselves are also moving um, into that uh, region. So we're really excited to see what happens in Saudi. 30 seconds left. September is soon upon us. 1st of September, we kind of fire the starting gun in business here in the UAE, don't we? It's been a busy summer actually, but 1st of September is always significant. Expo's just around the corner. What's on your agenda? We are really excited to, uh, to, to see a lot more people coming in for Expo. Expo. We're exciting what Expo has. Uh, we're excited to see what it's going to offer. We're um, It's a busy time for entrepreneurs because a lot of, you know, it's also school time. <laughs> so kids are back in school. I'm sure you know yourself, you know, um, everyone is busy. September is busy and go, go, go. So we've got a lot of stuff as well planned. Well, we look forward to keeping tabs on that. Thank you very much indeed for your company this morning. The hour has flown by. It has indeed. This is starting up with Virtue Zone. Richard Dean in for Tom Erko. You've been hearing Sarah Giwada there. She's the group director of operations at Virtues and we thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for yours.